Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I'm going to be starting a new co-author book about cancer, understanding cancer. So my first guest is uh, definitely a favorite of mine. I've had him many times, uh, Joe Bhakti. He's the founder of Quant Gene, Q-U-A-N-T-G-E-N-E. Uh, Joe, I think I just consider him a real innovator, innovator in uh, both uh, the area of you know, testing for uh, COVID-19, uh, for cancer and doing liquid biopsies, et cetera. So, Joe, thanks for coming back. How are you doing? Good, Richard. I hope you're, you're well. We are working very hard here on all kinds of things, but cancer is always our number one focus, and things are going pretty well. It's an exciting time. Tell me about your work at Quantine. What do you guys focus on? So Quantine is the leader in, in liquid biopsy technologies when it comes to precision. And uh, what that is, is uh, it's a new technology that uses next-generation sequencing um, in combination with AI and cloud systems to detect cancer at very early stages in the blood. Uh, to be more accurate, we detect cancer-associated mutations on DNA fragments in the blood. And what we uh, pioneered is the ability to have a single molecule precision across a very broad panel, so a high number of locations on the DNA detection capability uh, for fragments in the blood. So that is our core technology. We are embedding that technology in very advanced AI and cloud systems that also do whole exome sequencing data, combine whole exome sequencing data with that and other you know, medical records to create a holistic 360-degree profile, precision profile for each patient. Uh, so we not only see if we find anything suspicious in your blood in terms of cancer-associated mutations on cell-free DNA fragments, but also read out these patterns, recognize how important they are, and then put them in context, in a statistical context with your general baseline risk, based on your hereditary genetics, but also your medical records, your family history, and all kinds of other data dimensions. And in aggregate, this becomes an extremely, like a vastly more precise, sensitive detection tool for cancer. And in the future, I think also for a lot of other diseases. Yeah, no, definitely. How many cancers are known in total, uh, several hundred at least? Oh, how many total can Well, I think when you go into that, it, be, it becomes a very academic discussion because what is mm-hmm. a cancer, right? So, I mean, a small uh, uh, a squamous cell carcinoma, is that different from other lung cancers, for example? Is it, how do you classify it? So I think depending on the classification, you could say there are 50 cancers or there are 10,000. So uh, because every cancer fundamentally is different from every other cancer, you have to decide based on the mutation profile do you classify cancers by mutation profile, by genes that are mutated? Do you classify them by the tissue of origin? You know, if you just say each cancer is classified by the tissue of origin, then you only have as many cancers as you define tissues of origin. It's, okay. a, it's one of these questions. Everyone talks about cancer, but the details always become extremely messy. So That's true, yeah. That's true. You know, well, of, of the uh, thousands of possible ones, I mean, well, let's restrict it for a moment to a subset. What are the most common cancers that you know of that affect people worldwide? And then um, how many are normally considered 
and are not rare, you would say, that, that really come up often enough that they really need serious attention? Um, well, it's, let's start with the cancer types. I mean, the most common cancer types are the usual suspects, colon and colorectal cancers, breast cancer, lung cancer, pancreatic cancer. These are the biggest killers. Um, and then you have prostate cancer, which is probably the most prevalent cancer because, you know, I think over 50% of 80-year-old men have prostate cancer. So it's, in most cases, not, not the one thing that will kill you, uh, but it's extremely prevalent. Then you have, of course, Hodgkin, non-Hodgkin lymphoma um, and leukemia as the liquid cancers in the blood and lymph system. And then you have all the GI cancers, liver, kidney cancer, in addition to colon and pancreatic. Then you have uh, the urology cancers like prostate and uh, bladder. And you have melanoma. That's a very important one. Uh, you have thyroid, endometrial cancer, I think. And then, of course, glioblastoma, the brain cancers. So these are, I think probably the most uh, prevalent ones and the most dangerous ones. Well, dangerous depends on um, what are you looking at. Are you looking at mortality rates as a percentage of the cases? Or are you looking at just the total deaths? I think total deaths are probably a better number because if you have cancer that, you know, one person in the world has per year and this person dies, it's 100% mortality, but you don't have to be too afraid of it. Whereas, uh, right, it's a uh, rate is better, yeah. Yeah. And so normally, you know, lung cancer is the biggest killer, but it's still very much connected to smoking, which gives non-smokers kind of a false sense of safety. Uh, what people don't know is like over 20% of lung cancers have, are in non-smokers and mm -hmm. lung cancer is very deadly and dangerous. Then we have breast cancer, high prevalence, also high mortality, high total deaths, number two after lung. And then you have colon cancer. I consider, well, breast cancer, of course, is a, uh, uh, gender specific mm. or sex specific and uh, colon cancer is normally the cancer that gets probably the most attention because you can do the most screenings right now and it is a very serious problem it's also rising for reasons no one knows exactly all the cancers are rising when you talk about rising i've heard that a lot what is what is rising in your observance well rising means how many cases per year do you have and how many cases per population do you have and is this going up or down and uh, um, I think lung cancer is the one that is in retreat because of smoking going down. Breast cancer incidence rates, I think they're pretty stable. I'm not sure if they are going up. But it's not like uniformly everything is rising. There are certain ones that are, like you said, in retreat. Yes, but certain ones are also rising. For example, colon cancer in younger populations is rising significantly. So... We don't know exactly why, but it might be a food supply. I mean, that's speculation, but we see that younger people get more colon cancer, and colon cancer is very dangerous. Okay, got it. We, you talked about this a while ago. Cells that, that turn cancerous, they seem to take on new abilities. Some of them that I remember is, you know, unchecked growth, evading our immune system, angiogenesis, you know, growing blood vessels to feed tumors, alternate energy production, like instead of oxidative phosphorylation. What's the order that's been observed of the taking on of these abilities, if any? Well, there's a certain logic to it. So angiogenesis, for example, is not the first thing you need, right? So the first thing, it's a little bit of logic here and, and some speculation, but because these things are not very well understood, because in order to research them, how are you going to do that technically, right? You would have to follow a specific tumor over its growth and identify its capabilities. and 
put them on a timeline and it needs to be for one specific tumor. So that's not really possible. So therefore, it's a little triangulation. Quick question. What if I had, you know, God forbid, a melanoma? It's pretty, I guess it's easily accessible. And if I volunteered and said, hey, Joe, I don't mind if if every week for six weeks or eight weeks you sample this thing and sequence it, you know, if I paid you for it or if I volunteered, you know, again, and you were able to do it, perhaps you'd be able to do it that way. Well, but no, that's not really possible because that would require you to not treat it. You can't, you can't observe it if you cut it out and you can't observe it if you put chemotherapy on it or radiation. Uh, but if you don't do that, it would mean you have a malignant tumor that you don't treat that would be required to follow it, which is a little unethical, I would say. Well, someone would probably have to volunteer to do it, I guess, you know, again, God forbid if they were stage four, they knew that there's probably nothing that can be done. And in, in a way, it's like, you know, giving an organ for science. Well, you it's know, not very easy because in stage, four, in stage four, by definition, you have acquired all traits. You need a stage, uh, you need the worst mm-hmm. case, you need a stage, you need a stage one or precancerous that is dangerous and then decide not to treat it to see it grow into a metastatic cancer. Otherwise, you can't do it. And mm, that's, that's true. That's true. That's, that's a little problematic, if you ask me. Well, what about, um, are there any other animal models where this, um, this would be considered okay to do? Mouse model? and. I think that's a very good idea. You could take mice models and just follow them somehow. I think that's a good experiment. You could totally do that. I don't think it has been done. It's a lot of effort. It would be very expensive, but I think it would be a great study to take 10 mice. Somehow has some, uh, you know, oncogenic stuff. Let's just expose them and then mm-hmm. see how the tumors evolve and basically sequence them all the time to see the mutational changes. And also observe them otherwise through pathology to see, you know, what traits they acquire. I'm pretty okay. sure if you would do that, Richard, you would be very famous. So it hasn't been done. <laughs> Is there a situation you know of where a certain tissue does not appear to be cancerous, but yet it's growing at a faster rate than normal? But again, it's not cancerous when tested. It's just, for some reason, it's just dividing a lot faster than it normally would and maybe invading nearby tissues you know, crowding them out for some reason. Uh, sure. I mean, um, the the name for cells that have abnormal growth is uh, neoplasms. So neoplasms, mm. you can have benign or malignant. They are both actually called tumors, but benign tumors are just, they are not cancer, right? So they just grow, but they are not creating a problem for many reasons. Uh, so malignant so if you have, you know, let's say you have a tumor that is not malignant, so a non-cancerous tumor, the idea of a cancer is that it spreads, yeah, mm. not in the sense that it grows. If something, here's, you know, in, in medical terms, very simple. If you had a tumor in any place in your body that simply grows uncontrollably and does not spread, it is surprisingly undangerous because mm. at some point you will have some kind of symptom but imagine even in your brain, if you have a tumor in your brain that is benign and doesn't spread, uh, you can still get rid of it. Um, the problem is, so the spreading capability is what makes a tumor a cancer. And the spreading is what kills you. Because if it just grows in one location, you can always cut it out sooner or later. Okay, gotcha. And the spreading makes it, you know, then you have millions of cells at millions of places in your body. That's what actually a cancer is. And it's actually millions. People always think, oh, there's a secondary tumor. That's not the problem. It has spread to millions of places. 
you cannot, you, if you cut out the secondary tumor or tertiary or you cut out 100 tumors, you're still dead. Gotcha, okay. Epigenetically, what tends to be different about cancers? Is there more upregulation of certain genes and more downregulation? Like, is there a signal that's common to a lot of cancers epigenetically? Yeah, so you have methylation islands that normally, so methylation is a certain chemical change to the DNA without changing the actual nucleotide. And these methylation islands, they are called, where you have a whole series of Cs. It's always a C that is methylated that leads to a gene being switched on or off. And this methylation can normally be changed, of course, all the time. So there are chemical mechanics and pathways in the cell that can switch it off or on. And what we see in cancer, of course, the, you know, the genes that um, are in charge of uh, replicating a cell uh, are switched on too much. And uh, the genes that are you know, in charge of, for example, killing the cell if it replicates too much or stops it in one way or the other, they, are, they can be downregulated. So besides heart mutations on a somatic level that changes the gene, you can also have these effects. And in nearly all cases, it's a combination. Mm, okay. So it's a complex system where you basically have light switches on or off in the cell. And if you switch them too much on, there's too much light and it tells the cell to replicate to make it mm. super simple. And but then, it's not um, well understood. I mean, that's always important. No one understands how this works. Like you don't, you, yeah, you don't understand yeah. why it's switched on. It could also be switched off. You have to go into very complicated pathways to understand who switches what on. And there's not one protein that switches on. There might be hundreds of proteins linked in chains in cha kind of reactions. You know, where something happens and it's all a, a systemic balance, a statistical balance, how much of that is switched on, how much is switched off. It is never clear cut. That's why I believe, you know, one of the greatest breakthroughs, in my opinion, that is not even fully exploited yet is immunotherapy. Because every time you have something so complex, you cannot fight it directly by trying to get into the specifics of the complexity. You need another system that's equally complex and capable to yep. indirectly handle it. Makes sense. Um, you know, you are like a leader, like a like the president or some politician, they can't really change anything, but they can change if one group wants that and another group wants that, they can like make these groups do certain things to become productive or not productive or whatever, but they can't just go there and start doing things. Do you believe that cancer is a separate life form? I've observed from speaking to scientists that tumors tend to have their own different microbiome, their own you know, different method of energy production, defensive self, you know, evading the immune system and, and looking after itself and growing. And so, I mean, do you, do you believe cancer has all the hallmarks of being a separate life form? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, it's clearly an alien life form that, you know, lives in your host body. That's what it is. I mean, it's, you know, it's designed as every life to expand and replicate itself at the expense of its environment. Okay. I would say it's clearly a life form, uh, a new life form that's also separate in its interest from your own life form. That's why it's kids. Right. Yeah. Um, in terms of um, evading our immune systems, what are some of the, uh, the ways that, that cancers do it? You know, in general terms, like what are some of the main ways? Well, there are many, many ways. So cancer, for example, hides from the immune system. There are a whole different, you know, number of pathways. So for example, Cells are trained, they have certain mechanics to signal to the immune system that something is wrong to them, uh, with them. So a cell, the same way you have too much suppressor genes that watch over the cell to 
you know, say, okay, there's something wrong, let's kill ourselves. The same way they can also recognize certain things that are going on with them and tell the immune system. So for example, if it has a virus, it tends to display that virus on its surface. So the cell has a way to understand, okay, here's something is wrong. There's an alien protein in here and alien proteins can be mutated proteins. So let's take that thing and display it on our surface. Um, of course, the cell doesn't understand that really, but it just displays all kinds of proteins in itself to the surface. It's kind of a pass. It's kind of a, uh, it's a reporting system, right? Where the cell just agnostically reports what's in it on the outside. Now, of course, only small amounts of whatever's in the inside to create kind of a surface level protein code that the immune system then sees. And if the immune system sees something that is alien, it tends to kill the cell. And yeah, so it's like putting something out in my recycling bin and the garbage guys know, oh, okay, pick up the bin, you know, but instead in this analogy, they might know, oh, well, we got to burn the house down. <laughs> exactly. The whole house is compromised. Something's wrong. Again, every, everything that happens in the cell is basically a, a series of, you know, proteomic actions that happens. It's called pathways. So, you know, there is a mechanic where there's always n number of proteins involved to pass on this protein, to pass it onto the cell, to connect it from the inside to the membrane, then to open the membrane, to push it through the membrane. Let's say you need like 10 different proteins for that to, to keep that mechanism alive uh, or functional. So if you can stop that mechanism and your cells stop displaying that stuff, they become invisible to the immune system, for example. So what we see in cancer, and this is all not fully understood, but I just recently read a study on some, I forgot the gene, uh, the protein, but where a gene was mutated and they found out that that gene created a protein that was part of that chain and that led to the cells not displaying that to the outside. And that's just one example how they hide. Okay. I've also read that in cancer cells, you know, they're sending out extracellular vesicles just like all cells do, but they send out their own specialized forms of them. Um, what can you say about the, the nature of EVs sent out by cancer cells versus, you know, normal cells? Has, have they been compared side by side in the same tissue type to see the differences? Well, the EVs are very, these extracellular vehicles, they are basically mini, they're not cells, but they're mini balls or spheres made out of the membrane of the cell. Normally they serve, I mean, the suspicion is they serve as signaling tools um, between cells somehow. It's a little unclear how. They contain DNA and RNA and they contain, they contain proteins and lipids. So they, they contain all kinds of stuff and they basically are a little uh, fingerprint of a cell. And of course, they, they just randomly contain all the stuff that's in a cancer cell. So you see RNA that is based on mutated genes and you see mutated proteins. So you see a bunch of stuff with them. So they are kind of a mini microcosm of the cell. So they kind of reflect what's in the cell to some extent. And then so far they would just show you, oh, there's a mini cancer cell here. The problem is we don't know exactly, I mean, you can't, it doesn't have the immune system because the immune system can't check the EVs and the EVs are also not close to the cells anymore. They just search, like they circulate around. So they could, cancer cells could use this as a form of uh enveloped or secret communication they could do i guess they could you know the target cells they go into they could prepare they can conduct niche construction i guess for metastases to grow yeah i mean this is a great hypothesis i have no idea if that's in any way shown but it could have a viral effect right it could have 
I mean, these extracellular vehicles, because they're made out of the membrane, they can enter other cells, I would assume, somehow, because if it's like a different mouse, there are many reasons why that might not work. Do you know if, if anyone even knows if there's tumor-to-tumor communication using EVs? You know, once you have a primary metastasis, is there any, again, communication between these different sites using EVs? Um, we know, I mean, there are hypotheses that EVs in general, not for cancer, but in general, can can communicate between um, between cells. And so if that's true, then they probably can also communicate between cancers. I, I know that they are, there's another thing that people try to do. Um, they try to have cancer therapies delivered through extra, extracellular vesicles. I don't know exactly how they did that, but uh, it's kind of at least these EVs are a little bit also a newer thing that's not, it's not easy to study them because they're extremely tiny. Uh, they're yeah. hard to isolate. Um, they're fragile too, I'm sure. They probably, under centrifugation, they probably tear open and stuff. Yes, and we see it in cell-free DNA extraction that, you know, sometimes they become part of the cell-free DNA and sometimes not. Sometimes they're filtered out by the extraction process. So they're a very interesting thing, but we don't know too much about them. Okay. What What have you noticed or what have people noticed about the... Uh, a given tumor after exposure to chemo or radiation. I guess the ones that survive become more resistant. So, on you know, with your specialized glasses on, what do you observe that changes? You know, a tumor is hit by chemo radiation. So, one very interesting thing that we see consistently is that the mutational profile of the tumor changes throughout the course of chemotherapy. So, for some reason, it seems to be the case that, in, for most chemo drugs, they kill cancer cells according to the mutational profile. And that means other cancer cells get killed less. And that's why if you're carries positive or whatever, like EGR, EGFR positive, there are different drug regimes that are being utilized. And you know, one important thing to understand is that tumors, uh, there's something called tumor heterogeneity, which means that a tumor consists out of millions and billions of cells in later stages. So hundreds of millions early stage and billions later stage. And so a tumor doesn't have one mutational profile, but every tumor is a mix and mess out of millions or billions of cells that have different mutational profiles. Um, but, you know, they tend to be related because they are, you know, kind of uh, cancer stem cells, what people call it cancer stem cells. So the, the idea is that every tumor, a tumor you have, shares a certain you know, number of driver mutations from that it originated that is present in all your tumor cells. That's actually not true, but that's like a thesis, like a directional thesis. And then over time, they accumulate more and more additional mutations, and that's the heterogeneity. So the theory is they have some core mutations, and then you have thousands of different mutations that are kind of distributed across all your cells. And if a specific uh, chemotherapy kills a specific type of cell, it means it also does not kill the other tumor cells that don't have that mutation. And so the whole chemotherapy is a little based on the thesis that all your tumor cells have the same mutations if they are relevant for the effectiveness of the drug. And that is in nearly all cases not the case. And that leads to the effect that once you give the therapy, you kill a bunch of cells, but then you don't kill the other cells and they have more time to grow which changes the mutational profile of the tumor after therapy. So basically knock out a 
one type of sales and then after you have the other type of sales having more room to spread. Yeah, you're doing like active accelerated uh, selection pressure on the tumor. Exactly, as he's saying, everyone with brown hair gets killed, and then guess what? You have more blondes and black hairs, but that's just because you killed the brunettes. So, you know, that's the problem, and you have to, that's why you have com combined uh, combo therapies uh, where you try to kill them all at once, but of course, it's not simple. So, what you see is you have often very severe effects on the tumor profile, on the mutation profile, but that doesn't mean it's great, it just means you change the profile. Do you, do you think chemo radiation actually, um, again, allows the ex exploration of the information space and can create new, even more adapted variants? Or do you think just amongst the variants that are already there, the, the ones that survive, survive and then predominate? Or do you think it's actually driving new mutations that are beneficial or new change that's beneficial? Well, within a tumor that's hard to tell what it definitely does is it knocks out a certain type and allows the other type to grow faster because there's more space relative to the other type we also know that chemotherapy basically creates cancer so we know that chemotherapy increases the rate of mutations in healthy cells and therefore is something that drives cancer um, the, the origination of new cancers um, so the healthy person if you give 10,000 healthy people chemotherapy, you know, every year, the rate of cancer will be significantly higher in them. Um, that doesn't mean you shouldn't get chemotherapy, of course, because it's, if you have a severe, you know, later stage tumor, you need to deal with it. I mean, there's definitely this effect. So that's also why once you have cancer and you have been treated, the risk of recurrence is very high and sometimes even the risk of getting a different type of cancer. Wow. Mm. Okay. You know, now getting into the, uh, the discovery and diagnosing. How are most cancers diagnosed and discovered today? It's, I mean, liquid biopsies still are not really prevalent yet, right? No, liquid biopsy is the big transformation that's going to happen in the next 10 years. I think in the next five years, we will play a major role in that. And it, it's a game changer. It's a game changer because current methods are so bad and they're bad for two reasons. Number one, for most cancers, there is no method, right? When you think about kidney and bladder and pancreatic cancer, um, even lung cancer, there are no screenings. So that means, of course, in theory, there are tools you could use to screen, but there are no standard of care screenings planned because these tools are too bad. So basically the screening task force in the US and in Europe, they decided that it's not beneficial to screen people. They're so bad that you would find way more people with false positives and you would overlook all these cancers, so don't screen them. The tools are too bad. And so most cancers are simply completely not detected uh, until it's too late. Um, so for all these cancers that are not being screened for, which is the vast majority of cancers, because we don't have the tools yet and liquid biopsy is still starting now, um, for all of these, they are detected number one through symptoms, which is of course way, way too late. Um, when you have like yellow eyes, it's a little late for your pancreatic cancer. Or they are detected uh, incidental findings you have a car accident, you go into an MRI or a CT for checking out your bones and your tissue, and then they just randomly find a stage two or three tumor. That's literally what it is. It's incidental findings for all these cancers. It's the only way to find them, which is, you can imagine what the odds are for that. Not very high. Mm, yeah. And then you have some cancers where you have systematic screenings, colon cancer with colonoscopies recommended every 10 years, starting 45. But 
that's also telling you how bad that screening is. If you screen every 10 years, what happens in between? And uh, you have breast cancer screenings, of course, recommended for women over a certain age uh, on an annual or biannual basis, depending on country. And they are very, you know, there are lots of discussions if mammographies actually make sense or not. It's unclear. Or every most studies actually say they don't make sense, but that's a different discussion. They're also too bad. And then you have for skin cancer, you have guidelines that you should do if you are light skinned and you live in, you know, very sun intense areas. You should have annual visual screenings, but that's very vague. What does that mean? Your whole body needs to be visually screened somehow. Um, you know, it's, it's not the most effective thing. And then you have high risk screenings. If you're a 30 year day pack smoker, you should get a CT scan. Uh, I think I've, I think every three years or every year, something like that. But the adherence to these screening guidelines is like 10 to 20%. So nearly no one does it. Right. Which cancers are pan biopsy? Which ones you can? You just have to use uh, imagery to, you know, to, to figure out that there's something there. Well, you need a biopsy is required for all cancers. It's always the final. To get to a cancer diagnosis, you need pathology. You need a bi biopsy. So for blood, you need to see it in the blood. And lymphoma, you see it in the lymphs. Every other tissue needs to be cut out. It needs to be under the microscope, needs to be confirmed it's cancer. That is the final step to confirm cancer. So you can't do it without it. Uh, the question is, how do you lead to that point? It's kind of a complex funnel. How do you get the red flags? How do you locate the tumor? And imaging plays a very important role. But imaging is a very bad starting point because it's so crude, right? It's very hard to see anything if you don't know what you're looking for or it's early stage. What is the, uh, the minimum number of cells needed in order to see something on an image typically? I mean, normally the rule of thumb is it should be a centimeter in size, the tumor to be reliably found in imaging. If you have a very good radiologist, if it's half a centimeter, you can still find it, but below half a centimeter, it's unrealistic to find it. And as a rule of thumb, as ha at half a centimeter, you're talking about roughly 200 million cells, wow. right? So, okay. so you need 200 million cells in order to have a shot at finding them, but I would still estimate at least 50% will be overlooked. And, you know, what does it mean to find them? If you do a thoracic, like, you know, CT or something, you're not going to find that randomly. If you actively look for it, you might find it, but yeah. these wow. are very hard to see things. And that's it's a still, lot of cells. it's hundreds of millions of cells. And that's why liquid biopsy, this high precision liquid biopsy had continue developed and, or some other people with, other instruments that they already know what mutations they want is so important because we need one single molecule of DNA in your blood sample. And that means one cell, basically, to put it in simple terms. Yeah, what's the operating theoretical lower limit? You know, where you're going to get very few false, false positives or negatives. You know, what, one is crazy, but I mean, maybe it's possible. What do you think is realistic? What levels do you think you'll be able to see down to when liquid biopsy is out there? Well, we can definitely see, well, I have to be very accurate how I describe that. Like if you have one copy, one molecule of mutated DNA in our sample, when we put it on the sequencing machine, we will find it. That's exactly what we developed. The, the only, the, we are the only ones who can do that. The question is, how many do you have to have in the blood sample in order to end up with one on the flow cell in the sequencing machine? So the whole library preparation and extraction, how much do you lose? In my opinion, we lose roughly 90%, which is vastly better than what you could do before, before you lost basically 
I think my conservative estimate is we lose 90%, which means you need 10 in the blood sample, which is a very low number because you're talking about molecules. No, but that's orders and orders and orders of magnitude lower than, than what's possible right now with regular biopsies. So that's great. Yes, it's definitely much less than 200 million, but yeah. it, it needs to be 10 fragments. I would estimate 10 to, yeah, I think 10 is realistic. If you have 10 of these copies of that DNA fragment in a blood sample, we have a pretty good shot in recovering one. And once we have one, we see it. That's the big deal. And you can do the math, right? If you if you take 10 milliliter of blood, you take 0.2% of your blood. So, you know, you basically take uh, one in, what, 500? A 500th of your blood, if you need 10 in there, you know, times 500, so you need 5,000 circulating. Of course, it's a little more complex than that, but let's make it 10,000 circulating DNA copies in your entire bloodstream. So if you have a tumor, the question is, at what point is the tumor big enough to shed at least 10,000 of its cells into the bloodstream every two hours, right? That's kind of the calculation here because they get digested after two hours. That's not a lot of cells because tumors tend to be unstable. If you have 100 million cells and you divide that by 12 hours or to make it simpler, let's say 10, you know, that you're basically talking about what is the percentage of cells that die in a tumor every day? <clears throat> if you say it's 10%, which I think is maybe conservative, you have 10 million cells dying a day. You divide that by, let's say, 10 hours, you know, every two-hour increments. Uh, so you have basically a million cells that die and then circulate. This could be a series of, let's say, two or three finger sticks or finger pricks at home. Well, I think, in you the know, future, maybe. I don't think, I don't believe in the finger prick theory because we do studies all the time and we see um, with one tube, one large tube of blood, 10 milliliters, you are in problematic territory. You are missing definitely early stage tumors. Certainly, we get to, you know, 50, 60% sensitivity in many cancers. Uh, so that's not a sensitivity where I want to go to a finger prick. Uh, it's something where we probably need more blood. Any downsides to liquid biopsies versus a traditional biopsy? Well, there are no primary trade-offs. Um, there are indirect screening trade-offs that are always the risk. So if you start screening people, you will have false positives. Sometimes you find cancer mutations and signals, and then you can't find the tumor. Of course, I'm biased. I think it's always good to have much, much more data and insight. But in medicine, most people actually think differently. They, they think, I don't want to know it because once I know it, I have to take certain actions. It's one of the ironic things that, you know, tech innovators and data scientists have a completely different perspective from doctors on these things. Because doctors are a little bit more, there's a huge legal component to medicine. So I always say like medicine is at least 60, 70% just legal stuff or something that resembles a legal system. Um, and that means a doctor doesn't have discretion what they do. They have to take certain actions based on rule-based systems. And these rule-based systems, you know, it's like the IRS or Homeland Security starting to ask questions and getting answers from you. At that second, you already are in trouble regardless of the answers. Because once they have you on record saying something, you have a problem for the rest of your life. And that is totally not how a data scientist sees the world or a scientist, but that's how doctors see the world, right? Once I find a tumor marker in you, a whole cascade of problems start. Even if I think it's bogus and it's, yeah, it, it is there, but I think 
you know, this is such a low risk, we shouldn't do anything. They start, they have to do something. And that means they send you into more, they create more costs, they put you at more risk, they might have to do certain procedures that are not really justified. And so that's the big problem in screening that you have this rule-based system that says once we find something, you are in the, you're in trouble. Even if everyone thinks it's overdone, we shouldn't do it. So that's the risk here. If you, if you overdiagnose, that's the key word here, you get on record with all that stuff and that creates many problems. I believe this is not a technology that it actually stands in the way of medical progress and innovation. And it's just a legal problem. I think it's, it, we have to change these rules because they prevent progress. And it's a very uh, rigid and not very intelligent system. Yeah, it makes sense. I don't know if you've observed many different tumors and metastases, but they're heterogeneous. Talk to me about what makes them heterogeneous and the cells that comprise them. What constitutes the heterogeneity? Uh, the heterogeneity is mostly referring to the mutational profiles of these cells. So if you have a tumor, let's say 200 million cells, and you would start looking at that tumor, there was, a, I think, a Swedish study or Scandinavian where they started taking biopsies from a tumor from different locations of the tumor. And they did something fascinating. They, they barcoded each of these samples. They took many samples. They barcoded them, so they marked each sample with unique molecular identifiers in the sequencing machine. And once they were done, they could reverse engineer the three-dimensional mutational structure of the tumor. So they could basically say, oh, we sequenced you know, 10,000 cells from different locations. We barcode them where they were taken from. And once we are done, we can look, locate any type of mutation as a percentage of cells from specific areas of the tumor. So it's very cool stuff. And that this tumor, three-dimensional tumor structure, when you look at the cells, had completely different populations of you know, mutational profiles. So at the lower left corner, you saw oh, there's a lot of KRAS. And then on the upper right corner, there was no KRAS, right? which is one specific mutation, KRAS, or one gene with mutations. And then EGFR was on the one side, and on the other side was much lower frequency. And then BRAP was somewhere, but it wasn't there. And so that was actually very disturbing because, you know, the assumption of current oncology is that a tumor gets sequenced. What does it mean? You take one piece of the tumor and sequence it, and then you think that is the tumor, and then you base your therapy on that piece of the tumor, right? At the second where you yeah, understand yeah. That's, just, that's just wrong. Let's say I, I took a biopsy from like the lower left corner of it and I just struck a particularly rich deposit of KRAS, I would think, oh, most of it's that, but it's not at all, you're saying. Exactly. It's like saying, oh, let's hunt down terrorists, but we don't know how they look like. So we go in a terrorist village and take a photo of one. Say like, oh, this is how they look like. They all they have a red shirt on or something. Or you take a photo of 10 and they all have red shirts on. Yeah, but it's a giant city of terrorists and all the other ones don't have red shirts on. And then you say like, oh, get everyone with a red shirt. It's like fine but it's also not fine because once huh. you're done uh all the white shirt terrorists will like just be happier because they don't have the competition anymore of the red shirts so anything else that came from this study or any anyone else you know that studies the structural distribution of epigenetic change or mutational change in tumors does anyone have a map um, now of, of at least a few yeah, you can actually Google this if you find this. I can't, I, I don't know where the study is, but if you look up heterogeneity and 
two more than maybe 3D model or something, you should find it. It just tells us another thing why liquid biopsy is such a transformative technology. If you do a liquid biopsy, you get a systemic fingerprint of the tumor as it presents itself as a systemic phenomenon. Because in the blood, you see the entire tumor kind of mixed up. Whereas if you take one specific heart tissue sample, you do not see the systemic presentation of the tumor. So in the blood, without even knowing where it is, you get all the metastasis, you get secondary primary tumors, you get the entire tumor heterogeneity represented in the blood. Of course, you know, the downside of liquid biopsies is you, you get a much lower concentration, so you don't see certain things, but it's a systemic picture that's pretty reliable, which is much more important for chemotherapy. So my yep. thesis is that liquid biopsy will be highly beneficial for systemic treatments yep. because it is a systemic diagnostic as opposed to a uh, tissue biopsy. What are you picking up in a liquid biopsy? When you say shedding from a tumor, what's it shedding? Is it EVs? Uh, it is it the, a bunch of other stuff? Yeah, it sheds the DNA. We look for de circulating DNA fragments, so cell-free DNA. That is DNA that is shed into the blood by cells that have died. Okay. That's why it's so powerful. I mean, you literally look at DNA fragments in the blood. You look at all of the cell-free DNA fragments and you identify the ones that carry tumor variants or mutations on them. And we can do that with single molecule precision, which means we can look at every single molecule, every single fragment of DNA in a blood sample. And that allows us to identify any single one that looks different from your healthy body cells. Okay. Well, Joe, this is great. This is one of the reasons I love to talk to you. You got just a lot of knowledge and you're willing to speculate and think and, you know, literally, let's say, let's figure it out for first principles right on a call, which I love. So thank you for coming and being a part yeah, of this. It's always, um, it's always fun. We have to always separate speculation from science, but the point is that speculation is the starting point for all science. You need to have mm -hmm. some ideas what you want to know and what you reason. So where can people go to keep tabs on the progress of liquid biopsies and to learn more about your organization? Where do they go? Well, quantine.com, that's where you can keep track uh, with us, of course. You can also write me an email, jb at quantine.com. And liquid biopsy in general, I think if you just Google liquid biopsy, the industry is definitely, you know, getting more and more attention. There are some major big failures recently, but they get a lot of attention. And yeah, I think we will become much more visible in the next three months. We will have some very interesting publications coming out that for the first time show what happens if you look into blood samples and large studies with that precision. And that will be pretty exciting. Excellent. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.